Let us let us have personality, Richard. It's got to come know. through. <laughs> I know we have to cut somewhere. Okay. <laughs> And welcome to another episode of Floor 9. I am your host, Scott Elcherson. With me, as always, is my co-host, Adam. Adam, what's going on? Hello. It's snowing again here in New York. And it also is. in Texas. So not not uh, the, the what we would expect. Yeah, absolutely. But it does make for a great recording studio. It's nature's acoustic sound dampening. Ooh. I'm, I'm not recording this outside. But maybe we should <laughs> well, be. <laughs> <laughs> maybe, yeah, maybe we should be. Nature's soundstage. <laughs> well, we have a great episode uh, for everyone today. Uh, in the main conversation, we're speaking with Amy Owens, who is the head of Shopper Media here at UM, for uh, a little insight into how that specific form of marketing and advertising is developing uh, with the advent of click and collect and e-commerce and just kind of how we're seeing all these shopping behaviors change. But before we get into that excellent conversation, where I personally learned a lot, Adam, we have to talk about the news. and. There's a lot happening right now, especially coming out of Australia. So what is happening down in Australia with Facebook and Google? Some news about the news. Um, <laughs> so I, we've mentioned this before, but uh, but Google and Facebook have been in conversations with the Australian government mm -hmm. around uh, the Australian government wants them to pay publishers, but also disclose changes to their algorithms. And there's a bunch of sort of stuff around that. Um, and the the my understanding is that the law is actually not passed yet. So there's still some wiggle room in what's happening. But both Google and Facebook have taken action in advance of that. So um, Google has made deals with several of the major news publishers in Australia, including most recently uh, News Corp, um, which is, is uh, has a I think the, the largest publisher of mm -hmm. news in Australia. Um, of course, you know that the same News Corp that we have here in the U.S. Uh, owned by Rupert Murdoch or run by Rupert Murdoch. Um, Facebook, in contrast, has said no and has cut off. Um, Australian news sources from being shared on Facebook. Now, two very different approaches. There's a few nuances there. Um, one of them is that that Facebook, rather than like identify Australian news sources and blacklist them, which seems like the obvious choice, has instead deployed their machine learning to <laughs> figure out what is Australian news. And as we've seen with uh, their attempts to do this with misinformation on their platform, it doesn't actually work very well. So they're inadvertently blocking several government agencies, um, several you know community organizations, it's not pretty um, and, and, uh, at the at the moment that we are recording this. Hopefully, this will improve in the next uh, you know few days as they clean right. that up. Um, Facebook, I think this is a bargaining tactic for them. I think they will at some point resolve with Australia something that allows news to be shared on their platform again. I think it's unlikely to be you know sort of banned uh, in this way. I think they're just. It's a bargaining tactic. Google is setting a precedent so that every lots of other countries are suddenly looking at this as a way to extract money from Google. They had to have known that was going to happen. Um, and Google already does pay news providers in France as well as I think there's a couple of other countries. So maybe they're fine with that. Um, Google's main objection was actually to the uh, the algorithm disclosure. So they might be avoiding that by making these agreements directly with, with news providers. Um, maybe they're okay with it. It's a developing, 
you know, situation. Um, so uh, I expect that this is going to change rapidly over, uh, you know, especially on the Facebook side in the next few days and we'll, we'll, we'll keep you updated. Uh, but it does look like, uh, this is probably going to encourage more, <laughs> more countries to pursue similar actions. Um, the one thing that I just want to point out that I think the downside of this, it might, you know, a lot of folks might be listening and thinking, oh, it's fine for Google to be paying news corporations. Um, there is that it, that it might be okay, but there is no requirement for those news corporations to, uh, re, to reinvest that money in any way on journalism. <laughs> so they literally could just take the money and run. Um, so, there's a couple of things in the implementation details that are not really uh, ideal. The other problem is that it only applies to news organizations of a certain size, which really just helps in, entrench the yep. uh, the incumbents. existing incumbents. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So, you know, it, with, as with all of these things, there's a lot of unintended consequences. Uh, and uh, I hope that every other country who's watching what's happening in Australia now learns from the mistakes that are being made. <laughs> right. <laughs> because if we are going to do this, let's do it right. Right. And it's interesting, too, because this could be one of the areas where we start to see a real rise of essentially a splinter net. If Google search and uh, is no longer available in Australia and Facebook has pulled out, their entire internet could look very different in the way in which they, you know, navigate online and kind of grow as a, you know, country, honestly. Yeah. I mean, just to be clear, Facebook has only blocked sharing of news. Um, and I think a lot of people are justifiably saying, uh, let's see if that actually helps. We know that that sharing of, of news can be harmful uh, on social platforms. So if, if that forces Australians to go directly to their local newspapers and other local sources for news, that might actually be better. Uh, so uh, I think Facebook wouldn't be super happy about that if that turns out to be the case but if, if other <laughs> countries start asking them to do that you know it's not facebook says that news is only about four percent of what's shared on their platform so if they had to if, if if everybody benefits from that being blocked uh let's let's do it right it's, it's an interesting social experiment right yeah well we'll be keeping our eye on that for sure as this continues to develop uh as it's a pretty important news story when it comes to how information is to be shared online Next up from the Google Maps division, we have some news that they are now allowing users to pay for parking as well as travel tickets inside of the app. I think that's pretty exciting. We know Google has always wanted to get more integrated into the whole travel ecosystem. They announced Google Flights and all the kind of inner workings with that last year uh, and kind of how, help, helping people book their, their, like their travel. Um, but this is super interesting as we start to see kind of more utility brought to you know Google Maps outside of just that standard use case of directions and navigation on the road. Maps is really becoming Google's hub for a lot of other products. Um, both of these features require that you use Google Pay. So it's a way of, of forcing people into the Google Pay ecosystem as well. Um, I think the question is, at some point, do, and the reason that they're doing this is that Maps obviously is widely used on Android. It's also widely used on iOS. So it is probably the one of the top. I, I'm just, I don't think we know this. I'm just going to say it's the top Google app on iOS. Um, I don't think we know for sure, but it, it has to be one or two. Um, and uh, this is a way for them to get other Google services in front of users on both platforms. Uh, and that's why they're putting more and more stuff in it. I think the question is, at some point, does uh, it become kind of like what happens to the the Facebook Blue app? Does it just become too much stuff in one app such that you don't even... It, it, it It's hard to use for its, its intended purpose, and maybe you don't even see some of those features because they end up buried somewhere. Yeah, 
Absolutely. And moving on to our last bit of news here, uh, it's from Apple. And Apple's first Apple TV Plus AR app has launched for All Mankind, which is coming out, I believe, on Friday, the the 19th, uh, as well as they have launched their first Apple TV Plus companion podcast for All Mankind as well. So we have two new products kind of surrounding the launch of the season two of All Mankind. Adam, Adam, what are your initial thoughts on both the podcast and the AR app? Yeah, I mean, the podcast, we've seen lots of companion podcasts to uh, to prestige TV shows. So I think that this is just sort of a natural fit. Apple is very slowly ramping up their original <laughs> podcast uh, production. And this one is, you know, makes sense. Um, on the AR app side of things, the, the app is cool. Uh, it is, I think, a little probably going to have a little less of an impact just because it, it 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 is a destination you have to know about it go to the app store and download it and then you know experience use use the experience so i think uh you know it, it would be better if that were in deep more deeply integrated into another experience it would be uh would be nice but uh you know it, it, it's a it's a cool interesting idea those companion kind of after show podcasts always do very very well whether that's for the bachelor or game of thrones or even like the walking dead you know like those after fan shows have always performed incredibly well especially in the podcast space so to me that makes a lot of sense and adam this quickly uh around apple tv plus and their subscribers we have kind of two schools of thought right now one is coming from variety uh who is saying that or they have concerns that 62 percent of all of Apple TV Plus subscribers are on a free promotional trial plan. And then we have Neil Seibert, who is an Apple analyst, who found the actual churn rate is about 18% for Apple TV Plus, which he isn't that concerned about. So what do you, what do you think here? Are there concerns around the kind of churn rate and the total subscription numbers being on trial plans? What are your thoughts? Yeah, I honestly I see this as uh <laughs> variety and a lot of there are a lot of 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 um old school Hollywood folks who just want to rag on Apple uh and and, <laughs> and including, you know, a uh, technology folks who want to rag on their TV service. Um honestly, I think all of this is so premature. Um so if let's just assume Variety's number is right. If 62% of people are on a free trial, that means 38% of people are paying for Apple TV Plus when almost everybody who was who was watching it in the early days was watching it because they were getting it free with a device purchase. 38% of people are paying for it. That's that's way higher I think than anybody would have expected. Um this the the Apple keeps extending the free trial. So anybody who was in that free trial year is still getting it. So you're telling me that people who have never been on a free trial for TV Plus are 38% of them are are paying for it. That to me is really impressive. I don't think anybody would have have speculated that uh, a year ago. So I think that that's actually pretty good. Yeah, absolutely. Well, that is going to end this week's news. Uh, next up is our main conversation with Amy Owens, the head of Shopper Media here at UM for a conversation about the future of Shopper Marketing. This is your second time on the show, so welcome back. I know a lot has changed uh, since we've we've spoken last, <laughs> but, but I'm glad to be back. Yes. Uh, I feel like we, we spoke like in March um, of last year or April of last year, and who thought we'd be sitting in the same chairs? We, yeah, we really are. Let's just kind of get into it. And I want to start with just a brief refresher on shopper marketing for our, our listeners. So uh, can you just kind of break this down for us? 
Sure. Yep. So we actually um, have a discipline at EUM um, focusing on shopper media that mm-hmm. fa- falls within shopper marketing. And essentially it's, it's the last moment of truth of media. So uh, way back when, when it evolved from like the 1980s, it was the physical shelf at in the stores, yep. but right now it could be digital shelf. Uh, so it really is uh, closing the sale no matter where the consumer is. And COVID really flipped that on its head mm-hmm. um, because now you have to be able to give your consumer an option to purchase no matter where they are, what device they're on, what app they're on today. Um, so we focus on all of those different um, opportunities or tactics okay. to really drive that ultimate sale. How are you defining digital shelf? For me, that would be a product page on an Amazon or a Walmart.com, more more than likely. Um, It could also be D to C, so direct to consumer. Um, So it could be a like a JNJ.com website or something along those lines, um, just to give you an example. Um, So it really could be anywhere. And right now, it also could be mobile. So okay. it's a digital shelf on a mobile app. Got it. And I got one last clarifying question to that. Sure. Are you also categorizing social commerce into that realm of like a digital shelf, kind of like that last point of checkout? Yeah, I am. Okay. Uh, the the last comment I made when I was th- saying uh, mobile platform, I was thinking Facebook or like a Twitter or something okay. along those lines or Pinterest is really hot right now. Everyone's redoing their homes because they're really not going anywhere <laughs> on vacation. So they're, <laughs> they're finding additional dollars. So making everything shoppable, especially within those social worlds is, is really bringing everything together underneath the, I'll call it the shopper media umbrella. Mm-hmm. Okay. All right. Well, that, that's a great overview and some uh, you know clarity on what shopper marketing touches. Because I think the kind of held traditional view on shopper marketing is that it's stuck to inside of retail with aisles and end caps. I think that's how a lot of people right. think about um, shopper marketing. So we can kind of take this conversation in a few different places. Uh, and I do want to start with that traditional uh, retail side of the business, uh, specifically knowing that we've seen a lot of e-commerce growth. We're starting to see a lot of click and collect growth happening. You know, How is the physical side of the shopper media and shopper marketing changing um, to adapt to these new kind of consumer behaviors? Yeah, I don't want to say it's changed too drastically, okay. uh, but there's a lot of um, COVID uh, precautions that are being taken. So something that you might have to interact with to get a sample is now touchless okay. um, from, a, from a tactic perspe- perspective. Um, there's more space in the store, so you're navigating the store differently. Uh, we used to say that a shopper actually shopped the perimeter of the store, yep. uh, but now that it's a one-way, one-way, I guess, directional signage <laughs> on the floor, um, so you can't really backtrack, but it kind of allows you to weave in and out of the different aisles, so there's more opportunity for impulse buying uh, versus just shopping the perimeter, which is your standard like fruits, um, you know, bakery, frozen items, and that kind of thing. So... Not too many changes, but changes nonetheless. Um, so we're actually seeing an uptick uh, across our different uh, CPG clients uh, when it comes to sales, just because they're shopping additional aisles. Interesting. How do you think about it in a, a shopper marketing in a click and collect context where there is some e-commerce, obviously, but then also there's a physical point of contact? Is there Are there ways to bridge those two things for like a, a cohesive strategy there? 
It's so funny that you bring that up because there is. Um, the, right before the pandemic, those like a Walmart or a Target were doing a lot of uh, sampling capabilities. So if you're buying online, they're going to throw a sample in your bag. And when you're picking it up, um, there are some that go through lengths of suggestive selling. So they'll come to your car and they'll say, hey, we saw that you bought milk. Did you want cookies with that? We could go grab it for you. Um, so they're actually trying to almost replicate the this is what you forgot in your cart, so to speak, online, okay. but actually physically uh, next to a given, uh, you know, a car yeah. or outside of a store. I love that because one of the things we were talking about uh, last week, I think, was just that you lose this, um, the, the, the checkout aisle impulse purchase uh, mm-hmm. side of things, obviously, um, in, in a lot of, it's been hard to replicate that in e-commerce and certainly with click and collect um, as well. But I think that that's, it, it's great that there's that opportunity just to be the like, the the reminder of like, oh, I, I did forget this, but it's not too late, even though I, I placed my order a couple of hours ago online, I can still add something to my order, since I'm here in a store. <laughs> yeah, it's almost I related to I related to it's almost like going to a restaurant and you see the menu yep. and you're you're going to pick and then all of a sudden they're like, hey, do you want to hear the specials? And so you're right. like all thrown off and you're like, oh, I kind of want that special, but I also want this piece that I'm, I'm used to getting. Mm-hmm. So it adds a certain dynamic. Like it's more 3D now when it's when you're picking up your your groceries, which I will tell you right now, my husband doesn't like because he just wants to get in and get out. <laughs> right, right, right. <laughs> well, and so so that's an interesting uh point right there because you know uh, Ben Evans has a pretty good framework where it's putting retail on a spectrum of logistics versus inexperience. Logistics very much so representing that you want to get in, you want to get out, you know what you want, and that's it. Whereas the experience side is more focused on maybe I don't quite know what I want yet and the retail environment is there to help guide me to a decision. So like, are we starting to see that because of click and collect that it's starting to get more towards is that like logistics side of the business where people just want to get in, get out, they don't want to have the full on experience? Um, Or is it kind of just balanced depending on where you are and what retail environment you're in? I feel like you're going to get a happy middle of that because there are some retailers that uh, last time we spoke, they were just trying to keep up with the times. But now they're thinking, um, you know, five, 10 years from now that are building drive throughs that you literally have to drive through to pick up your groceries and then think of yourself at a McDonald's. What else can you add in order? And then you go to like the second window and then you're actually picking up your groceries. So they're making the experiences and, and kind of creating them for you know, future. They're not necessarily out there yet. Um, but it's not necessarily going to be this like, hey, pick up and go right away. So then in my mind, you might have more people actually going in the store because <laughs> then it's that old mentality um, with, with you know, like some of the protocols that are in place. But yeah, so that's like, to me, I think it's going to be a combination and it's going to be it might tell you, you know, subconsciously where you want to shop because you know that I'll make this up, but Target down the road has that ultimate experience and you only have 20 minutes or you could go to Walmart the other way that probably has the same things for relatively the same price, but it doesn't have that experience and you're just going to go in the store. Yeah. I love that drive-through concept bringing that to other forms of retail, because we know drive-throughs have been super popular in the quick service space during the pandemic for obvious reasons. But I think it also, 
and obviously, you know, it would, would be great for retail right now, but I think it also is future focused in that you can obviously also use them as distribution points for delivery. And you can also, I think it'll line up nicely when we do get uh, autonomous vehicles on the road as well. You can, maybe you're in the, in the vehicle or maybe the vehicle is doing the pickup for you, but either way, you can actually have that interface to add things to your order right in the car. Yeah. And I almost feel like it's a hybrid too of, you have like Uber Eats now that could go pick up your groceries and then you have those apps like an Instacart where like Uber Eats and Instacart's now work together yeah. and then you have someone texting you saying, hey, did you want to add this today? So it's like almost you could almost do it from your couch in, in, in that way, in that regard. So everything is it's changing, but it's really changing rapidly because of the situation that we're all in. Are you starting to see any new media opportunities evolve maybe outside in the pickup space, whether it's maybe painting specials on a parking lot or bringing the impulse aisle outside to the actual parking space? Funny you say that because Walmart used to do um, in-store events, but now that we are limiting the number of people in store, they've actually pushed it to be outdoors and call it, call it more of a sidewalk event. Um, so think of it as someone standing in front of the store, giving out samples um, and or like having, um, you know, during game time, throwing around a, a football, getting a coupon um, as, as your souvenir if you, you know, you throw it the longest at the given store. Um, the other one that's also really interesting, too, is that Walgreens now is actually painting spots um, by their entrance of their stores in the parking lot and actually branding uh, different opportunities there. So imagine yourself pulling up and you are um, picking up or you'd like to go um, to the right of you could be, you know, a, a big painted spot that says like tied. Pick it up. <laughs> um, so they're actually testing that too. It's, it's a little on the pricey side, but I think it's interesting because in the past you'd be like, well, why are you going to put that there? But now if someone's sitting there, it's almost taking advantage of the dwell time. I am curious, like, are there any technologies that you're excited about to kind of be introduced to this environment to maybe improve the experience, whether that's AR technology, whether that's, you know, visual, visual shirts for some sort of commerce um, or even like cashierless checkout. Do you see any of that playing? into just, you know, how this overall experience can be improved upon? Yeah, I honestly, it's everything touchless, anything, everything. So touchless pay. Um, I myself actually signed up for an Apple card um, as a credit card, and now I'm using my phone. Um, I think it's pretty cool, but it's like you don't even have to take out your card, let alone talk to anyone. You do self-checkout. You, you're kind of on your on your merry way. Um, also, the other thing that I do want to bring up is that um, you may laugh a, a slightly about it, but is the revival of QR codes. Because way back when, when I was on the sales side, we used to sell media at shelf and we tried to put a QR code, but you had to download an app. You had to have an Apple phone. If you didn't, it never worked. And then you had to engage. There was no cell service in the store. Now it's so easy because everyone has an iPhone. So that's actually something too, again, that kind of logs under touchless, but that actually is near and dear to my heart because it's, it's, it's back. Um, <laughs> and you just have to take a picture. You just have to literally, um, you know, open up your camera and you could actually um, engage with anything on shelf. And, and we've actually been taking advantage of that because people don't want to touch something, um, especially in the stores. Right. What are those use cases that uh, brands are looking to explore specifically for a, a touchless environment? I'll say that um, a lot of it is more of the AR piece of it, but it's usually around 
a big initiative or a season or an occasion or a new product. Um, the main focus or, or how we're using it today is to get a coupon. And so again, like I think of myself, you know, like five years ago, um, no one had the technology to add the coupon to your phone. So only not only are you, you know, skipping over the hole um, that you needed to scan to get, you know, a QR or sorry, to download the app to get the QR code to get the coupon. You were literally opening up your camera and a coupon is then saying, hey, do you want to add this to your, Apple your store card on your phone? Mm-hmm. Um, so that's actually one of the bigger ways that we're um, using the engagement um, versus the AR experience. But we are okay. doing things like that when it's like a, a major innovation or, you know, like Easter is coming up. So that's something that's going to be big. Find the bunny in the aisle, things like that. Oh, that's super interesting. And two, because like depending on the QR code and how it's set up, it can be dynamic. So you can refresh the link and the content and the offer that's on there. So you can always have the most relevant offer available. Correct. Um, and like that just brings up like like a, like like a whole new thing for like pricing strategy, right? Because like you could just like dynamically change your pricing or your discount based on what your competitor is doing next to you. Correct. We just talked a lot about the the retail space and the physical space and how that's developing. Um, Let's go a bit more into the online environment. Like, how is that currently being developed? What are some areas of of interest for brands that they're trying to, you know, improve upon to make a more, you know, I guess a a more convenient uh, shopping experience? One of the major pieces that uh, we've seen um, happen within the last year is really the rise of the retail media networks. Um, A few reasons of why they've actually come into place is one, they're realizing that they could create another revenue stream for themselves uh, quite easily. Two, there have been leaders in the play, in the space like a Walmart and an Amazon um, that are requiring spend through those networks. Um, but more importantly, it is actually intriguing. Um, kind of my third point to the CPG is because it's all based on first party data data that the retailers do not share with anyone else. So if you want to tap into, um, I'll stick with Walmart again, um, as an example, if you want to tap into Walmart, you could actually figure out a shopper's behaviors, whether they're online or in the store, and you could use that data to target them. So again, it's making sure that you're reaching that shopper, um, but it doesn't matter where you're reaching them within the ecosystem. So you could reach them in store, you could reach them online, you could reach them with a sample as they're, you know, click, click and collecting. Um, so that's actually making it a little bit more unique. And I will tell you that um, I'm a nerd and I read the trades every day and there's a new retail media network every single day. Like it's actually, it started with like grocery actually uh, that that category. And now it's actually going into like clothing. So Macy's, Kohl's, JCPenney's, they're actually building those networks as well. Um, so I think everyone's just trying to jump on that train to really push forward the, the use of data to really connect the physical and and, and the, the the digital shelf. Um, but also um, it's a little bit more convenient because then you have the first party data, you're targeting a person and not just throwing out an impression and, and making sure um, somehow it sticks. Um, but you would know that they're, what their behavior is and you could actually intercept them before they're making a purchase. Yeah, that's super interesting. And I, I, th- I think it even plays into, because like we're talking about like first party data here, just all of the privacy concerns that are kind of going on in like the cookie-less world that is happening this becomes a very appetizing place for advertisers because it all it, it is all first party data um that can be leveraged to to point target a individual um at the point of purchase so i think that's a super interesting this environment to, for for brands to be um exploring so 
I wanted to bring up a question about that relationship between CPGs and retailers in this new kind of digital environment. Are we starting to see that these, you know, shopper media networks like a Target, a Walmart, or even what CVS might be doing, are they more willing to provide, I guess, like data back to CPG brands? Because like, notoriously, that has always been like a a sticking point was that CPGs would sell to like a Walmart or Target and they just wouldn't know what happened to the product, you know, in, in store. Yeah, we're seeing it more. Uh, I will tell you, the majority is taking the approach of soon, not yet. Okay. Uh, because uh, we'll see like an Amazon that is willing to share their data, but there's a lot of guardrails around if you do use their data, how you use it and where you use it. Mm-hmm. Um, we, um, There are a few other retail media networks that are out there that are just saying, hey, you know, we're going to um, give all of this data out to you. Um, if you sign up for a commitment, which is fine, but then it scares the others because they're going, oh, wow, they're giving they're giving all that information. Um, it's going to make the standard in the industry. So there's a lot of shakeups that are happening that I will tell you that in a year or two from now, we're going to have access for access to all sorts of data that we weren't allowed to have just because the retailers are going to be um, coerced to providing that information more so that they want to and they feel comfortable doing it. It's because someone else who their competitor is, is doing it. Therefore, they need to keep up with the times. So we've been talking about traditional retail media channels like a Target, a Walmart, a Walgreens and what's been like being developed. But are there any other areas? You know, you mentioned grocery was one of the first places um, we saw these retail media markets developing, like where else are we seeing people starting to kind of get into the space, you know, types of companies, applications, whatever it might be? Yeah, one of the major ones is Instacart. Um, Selfishly, I I follow them um, almost daily to understand (laughs) what they're doing in the space. It's it's really interesting because as they're the little brother of of Amazon, the CEO came from Amazon. Um, He really tried to create the same model. And if you ever read the the Amazon book, The A to Z Store, you'll know what Instacart's doing next because they've been doing and really following in the footsteps of Amazon. Um, but, But what's really interesting is that all these retail media networks are coming out, um, you know, like daily in the trades um, and really creating a lot of buzz. Walmart's releasing buzz when they're really um, coming out and saying they're wanting to partner with the trade desk. Um, But in my mind, that's the left hand moving and the right hand moving is the one you're going to have to watch. Um, Instacart actually just bought um, some patents from IBM uh, yet as of yesterday. And so I feel like that's interesting in itself. And it's all around, um, grocery applications and how to buy. Now, do we know what that is? No, but that's something that Amazon did before they came out and started um, enhancing their um, their media network. And then they started creating their own brand, uh, which is the Amazon brand. So I don't know if Instacart is going to get there, you know, in the next six, 12 months, but I really feel like they're going to sign up as many retailers as possible. They signed on um, non-grocers in the past, like, so like a Sephora and Best Buy um, that you can now tap into them from a delivery service perspective. But now the patent things is really interesting to me because it actually, um, uh, you know, propels them to something that they probably couldn't do um, in the past uh, with technology. And what that is, we don't know. Uh, But from a a grocery standpoint, they're the ones to watch because they are the aggregator. They work with all the retailers. Um, But the focus really is interesting because it is on the retail media networks and not necessarily Instacart. Right. 
Oh, that 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 is interesting. And I guess I like that plays into like that category you were talking about before. It's like the mobile app space of like kind of how that's developing. Um, this is kind of like a stray thought, but it it triggered to me like what what GoPuff is doing. Like go like GoPuff. Like we keep talking about oh, what's the future of impulse buying and how how it's all going to look. To me, GoPuff is impulse buying. Like that. Like their whole setup right now is it's like all of the different snacks and candies and sodas and things that you can buy on the impulse like on the impulse aisle. Like that whole app is an impulse purchase essentially. Mm-hmm. They deliver from I don't know what is it like you know twelve in the afternoon to twelve o'clock in the morning or something like that or like one o'clock in the morning. Like to me, yep. that is. The future of the impulse buy right there is it's kind of like it's all segmented into in, into GoPuff. Yeah, they're they're interesting too to watch. So if I looked at kind of like a grid, they would be like all the way on the right hand side with Instacart. So Uber Eats bought Drizzly, and then I want to say that GoPuff bought a beverage company. So everyone's starting to gobble up all the other apps. Um, so that's what makes it even more interesting um, to watch, like kind of like the right side of of the chart to see like where they're going to go next. Because I have a feeling, again, like the the patent thing, like makes me scratch my head a little bit but it definitely mimics what amazon has done right yeah and just to clarify uh, gopuff has acquired bevmo which is a company i have not heard of but for 350 million so uh not a small acquisition Wait, gopuff acquired bevmo <laughs> yes gopuff is big enough to acquire bevmo that is gopuff is surprising huge i had no they, idea well and so what's weird it's interesting about gopuff is that they start around college campuses and that's yeah. where like they thrived and they're slowly getting more into like the like the major urban hubs like new york and la and san francisco and austin and like those places where there's enough volume to make their whole business model work um yep. But they're just not quite here yet. But over the pandemic, you know, they were I was talking to the team. It's like, I mean, they have they were hitting record highs on ice cream and alcohol and candy every single day. They were just saying they like it was record high sales every single day. They're like, we don't know what to do and we and we can't keep things stocked. Um so it's like they have definitely grown, you know, exponentially over these past, you know, year. Yeah. Sounds like it. <laughs> yeah. Interesting. I know, right? It's just one of those little, like one of those fun little things is floating around in the corner of the internet that's not quite, you know, main, mainstream but super interesting. So, knowing all of this, how how should brands be thinking about shopper marketing in 2021? Like what's going to make a good strategy? What, like what are challenges they need to be thinking about? You know, how can they be successful in 2021 because it seems like there's a lot of great developments that are happening, a lot of new opportunities uh, and things that are on the horizon that are just going to make, you know, shopper marketing a core pillar to a, an overarching media strategy uh, for, a, for a brand. Yeah, there is a, a there's a lot of, um, I will call it pivots happening in the space. Um, one major one, and it depends on, you know, how big you are as a company mm-hmm. is understanding that you have three or four teams trying to do the same thing, talking to the same consumer. So said another way, you have a shopper team, you have a brand team, you have a media team, you have an e-commerce team. And what's happening in the industry is that everything is converging. So how do you actually tackle that internally and almost create this, you know, commerce or omni-channel approach? Mm-hmm. Um, because 
if you're not aligned that way today, then how are you going to approach the marketplace? And then you're you're going to have a lot of inefficiencies. Um, so that's that's one of the the major hurdles that we're okay. we're seeing in the marketplace um, from that perspective. Uh, the second piece is that, uh, or my advice from a strategic standpoint, is to not look at retail media networks as shopper anymore. It's going to need um, a lot more support from brands because mm-hmm. of the dollars that we're being put into them. So it's more like another uh, media channel. So the way I'm looking at it is that there's like a TV, there's a you know digital radio, then I'm calling it shopper media. I don't think it will end up saying shopper media. Maybe it's called commerce, yep. um, something along those lines. But if you look at it in that fashion, then you start to converge, like I said, like all those different people Internally on a CPG side, you bring all of those dollars into one pot of money, and then you really know how to approach this channel versus kind of doing one-off programs, um, and they're kind of all over the place, and again, creating those efficiencies. So there's churn happening where you do see the CPGs recognizing the change in the industry, but there's a lot of political hurdles Mm -hmm. or, you know, like frameworks or like some have to like reorg their whole entire uh, organization. (laughs) Uh, So I think some of them will be slower if you're a bigger company. Um, There are smaller companies that are more agile and then they can pivot quickly uh, to get there. Um, But the reality is that some are still looking at is this is shopper dollars and this is brand dollars. To me, I think it's it's dollars um, that should come out of one bucket. And the way we look at it too, as an agency, is that we look at everything all together and holistic. So we're not looking at TV separately from a digital versus commerce. We're looking at the whole um, dollar amount. And then we're saying, okay, this is how much we should spend on each of the channels. It seems like too, it's, it's, it's very much in the category of like performance media, right? Cause it's like, you're right at the point of that, like last click attribution at the point of sale, like driving a purchase. To me, it seems like it kind of like, you know, falls into that realm of just performance media. Shopper is like performance media because now there's a gray area. So mm-hmm. if you think of performance media in the past, it used to be search and, right. and social, like that last moment of truth. Shopper now becomes that, but it's more powerful because it has data. And then these retail media networks are also providing search within their own platform. Mm-hmm. So it's more of a gray area, becomes more concrete. So it's almost as if you take performance media, what it was in the past shopper media and converge that and like call it commerce media. That's like the new channel. Amy, thank you so much for uh, coming on floor nine and, you know, giving us the lowdown on what we can expect from the shopper media channel or the, the commerce channel. How, I don't have to say anymore, but I'm excited about the new name that's that'll be coming out uh, in 2021. Uh, I would say any last thoughts for our, our listeners or our brands uh, that, that might be listening? Uh, No, thank you for having me. I would just say more to come. Something new happens every single day. So if you want to talk through anything from a shopper perspective, uh, definitely reach out. Fantastic. And so, uh, Amy, where can our listeners find you online? So I, you could probably find me the best way uh, and the quickest way is on LinkedIn. So uh, Amy Owen on LinkedIn. Excellent. Plain and simple. All right. That's easy. Uh, awesome. Well, Amy, thank you so much for joining us. Uh, it was an absolute pleasure speaking with you and uh, getting the lowdown of what we can expect on the Shopper Media Future Commerce channel that is in development name TBD. Listeners, that is going to wrap up this week's episode of Floor 9. As always, you can reach out to myself and Adam on Twitter. I am at T-I-P-P-I-E-R. Adam is at Adam J. Simon. Uh, Please let us know your thoughts. Uh, Happy to answer any questions. So uh, thank you so much, and we'll talk to you all next week. (laughs) 